Well, <clears throat> welcome to Hell and Back is Back. This is Charlie, and I'm coming to you from Northampton, Massachusetts on May 20th, 2022. And basically, I did 83 podcasts in the past, each one hour. And uh, I, But I stopped doing them, like, I don't know, a year and a half ago? And uh, to do other things. So they were just, I just didn't have the creative energy to do everything. So now though, space is more cleared. I'm back, um, I'm resuming, I'm, it's a new start, it's a fresh start, it's a new beginning. And uh, just to tell you for a moment, I started doing them in 2017 in the fall. I did them uh, not with an idea of some big audience listening or getting the word out to a million people. Uh, I did it because I wanted to have an avenue to explore more deeply for myself and the work that I do. How do people end up in hell? And how do people get out of hell? And how do people get through hell? And it's all different kinds of hell. I mean, you've had, you've had your own hell. You might be in your own hell now, but whether you are or not, you've definitely had hell. And when I talk about hell, I'm talking about quite a wide variety. If you listen to the 83 podcast, you'll hear a lot of different things um, about that. And so I, it allowed me to go deep into some things like that that helped my work, it helped my teaching. Um, and I want to um, uh, now resume this. So let me tell you what's old about this podcast and what's new as we get started here. So what's old uh, is me. Uh, I'm old and uh, I'm probably older than when I last did the podcast. Uh, it's not noticeable to me, but it probably is noticeable to my birth certificate. And, um, and, and I'll tell you just a little about me, because some of you wouldn't know me at all. Maybe this is your first time listening to my podcast. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm in private practice uh, in Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm uh, an associate professor of psychiatry at University of Massachusetts Medical School. Uh, before that, for 14 years, I was uh, a, a professor of psychiatry, uh, associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell Medical Center, Cornell University Medical Center in New York, and I ran programs there. And uh, yeah, I have two children. They're 23 and 27 years old. I'm married. I have two dogs, Cash and Lola. Uh, we live a little on the edge of town here. I grew up in Oregon. And uh, that's all the basics. And that if I had my first choice in my career, I would be an NBA basketball player. I'd be the only NBA basketball player 73 years old, um, you know, which is a lot more than 37, which is probably close to what the oldest are now. Um, so I would have been setting records, but oh well, that didn't work out. I'm not even a basketball coach, I'm a psychiatrist, and now I'm a podcaster. So that's a little about me. Now, the focus and mission of this podcast now is really to uh, help you. This is to help you now. The first 83 were to help me get more deeply into some things, and this will still help me. But I decided I want to get this out to a larger number of people because everybody experiences suffering. Everybody experiences adversity. Everybody goes in and out of hell. And so I think everybody can use uh, the kind of things that these podcasts have been about and that and I'll tell you more about what they're based in so that's that's really the mission of the podcast is to get them to you so I want to know from you as I go along and if you listen to any of these podcasts get back to me uh, write me through my uh, website if you want charlieswenson.com where you can send a message to me uh, you could write me an email at c.robert.swenson at gmail.com or leave a comment at anywhere that you're getting this podcast and so that I can be on track with you. And if you have suggestions of what kind of uh, skills you want to hear about, what kind of uh, principles you want to hear about, what experiences, uh, what kind of hell you want to want me to talk about, let me know because it helps uh, keep me on path, especially now that I want to make this so useful to you. Um, important for you to know, if you don't know this already, that um, in coming up with these ways of getting in and out of hell, especially getting out of hell, 
Um, what I'm relying on is, first of all, my own life experience, uh, the experience of my patients and people that I've taught and people that I've worked with, people that I've supervised, uh, and uh, different theoretical foundations, the most important one being the treatment of dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. Here was the original manual for that, was by Marsha Linehan in 1993. And so this is really, uh, you know, a lot of this, especially the things that I call skills, skills for getting out of hell, skills for becoming more aware, skills for regulating your emotions, skills for tolerating distress, skills for becoming more mindful. These are all from DBT. Um, I also was originally trained psychoanalytically as a different type of psychotherapy, and I had a fair amount of training in family therapy and couples therapy. Uh, and of course, psychopharmacology as a psychiatrist. So that's just a little of where this podcast is rooted, where some of this comes from. Um, what else is old about this podcast? Even though it's upgraded a little bit technologically compared to what I was doing before, um, it's still, as podcasts go, in the world now where there's whole studios, like television studios that do podcasting, with lots of technology and lots of expertise and lots of production value, um, this is a more or less, uh, you know, podcast unplugged. Uh, it's, it's, more, it's a little more direct than that. And I think what I've heard in my feedback that I've gotten from people is some of them like these podcasts because it just seems authentic. Like I'm just talking to you from my heart and my experience and my thoughts. And, um, and it's not produced as much as some. Uh, for better or worse, that's, that's the way it is. It's a little more technological than before. For instance, when I started in, uh, in 2017, I just sat down with a telephone in my uh, guest room in my house and talked for an hour. My family didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was just going in there and talking to myself for an hour. And then, uh, and then uh, after many, many podcasts, it graduated to being a Zoom cast. Once we were in the pandemic and people were on Zoom, I started doing the podcasts on Zoom so that it included a visual component if you wanted to, though I tried to do them in a way that didn't require the visuals. Um, and what else I did, that was about it, you know, I talked, I, I interviewed people, uh, I uh, sang some music that I made up about some of the skills, and uh, I took some questions and uh, I responded to some emails and that was it. Now I'm in my office in downtown in Northampton. Um, if you're in a city, down, just to tell you, downtown means there's one main street. It's not like a big downtown. I'm on Main Street, and uh, that's the street. Uh, and so I'm, I'm downtown. I'm down, just down the street from Smith College, if you know anything about the colleges in the area. Um, and uh, now I'm set up as doing podcasting in this office, and so that's, uh, that's all a little different than before. Um, what else? I'll probably continue to make up some songs and sing some songs, uh, or even some of the ones I've done before, which are um, to, to, to get messages across. Um, what's new? I mentioned the technology. Now, now, instead of just sitting on Zoom, there's actually a camera, there's a microphone, there's lighting. Oh my God, I feel like I'm, uh, I've just entered a new realm. You know, I'm just one step away from Hollywood now. And, um, and so sitting opposite me in this room at this moment as I speak is my assistant. I have, an, I have a, an assistant. You might call him my assistant. You could call him my producer. You could call him my cheerleader. Uh, you could also call him my son because he's one of my sons. He's, uh, his name's Ruben. And, uh, and so Ruben's gonna be here with me through this podcast and maybe now and then uh, he and I'll get into a little something if we have some, something unresolved in our lives or just about the podcast. So anyway, I want you to know that too. What else is new? The hat is new. The hat here, you notice my hat, if you're seeing this visually, it's too bad if you're only hearing this because you're not getting to see this very cool hat. This is a um, silver hat. Um, and you may wonder, why am I wearing this hat? I mean, I'm not a rapper actually, even though I've done a couple of raps as part of my songs. Uh, and, uh, and, and, I'm, and I don't know what else it means. And so here's the thing, 
I got this half because a patient of mine in a skills group of mine who is a college student did an art project as part of her senior project from school. And she and, and it's hard, I'm not gonna describe the whole interesting project, but in the project, it was interactive. Like you'd come to her project and there'd be a zillion objects on the floor. And you were supposed to look at all the objects and choose one that you want and take it home with you and leave a note for her about why you chose that object. So I uh, took this half and, uh, and I wrote on the note that I didn't know why I took it. Uh, it just seemed like the right thing for me. And so I'm telling you, uh, probably until I understand why I took it, I'm probably gonna wear it. Uh, but I don't really know what the point is. It sort of is different than my usual personality, like I've never had a hat like this. Uh, so it's kind of cool. I feel different when I wear this hat than when I don't wear this hat. Um, and I've only been, I'm only gonna wear this hat for the podcast for the most part. So anyway, that's new. What else is new? Um, talking to more of you. I mean, I, I think a couple thousand people have, have typically downloaded or viewed my podcast. Um, but you know, I realized, and they're mostly within the world of DBT therapy, one way or another. And I've learned through the grapevine that these skills and these things and these experiences would be helpful for way, way, way more than just the DBT community. So even though I think of it as part of my community or one of my communities, I just think uh, these skills are gonna be helpful for everybody. I know they are. I've had a lot of experience with that. So I'm talking to all of you who wanna listen. So God knows how many that'll be, but it's, it's I'm not gonna, you don't need to know shit pardon the language, uh, about DBT, really, to take advantage of this. So I'm just inviting you to try it out, see what comes up, and to give me feedback. What else? What else? There will be some live sessions. I haven't worked that out yet technologically, but I think we'll probably do YouTube live session once in a while where if you're interested, you can get on with me and we can, um, you can ask me questions and I can respond directly or we can discuss things. And so I'm, I'm going to Look forward to that. Um, what else is going to be new? In addition to my usual, sometimes just talking by myself, sometimes singing a little bit, sometimes having an interview with somebody who one way or another has a perspective on going through hell, um, I, there's, there's, going to, there's a person who it looks like is going to be now and then a co-host with me. I'm not going to introduce her yet because uh, it's not all settled and finalized yet, but I'm very excited about it having a co-host that I think uh, I've had some fabulous conversations with and who is really a gifted, smart thinker. Um, and so uh, also of a different generation than me, and I won't tell you which, which generation, um, if, whether she's 103 or whether she's uh, younger than me. Um, what else? Uh, what else is new that I wanted to tell you about? Now, I think that was most of it. Okay. So what are we doing today? Um, you know, the, I, here's a perspective on today of deciding how do I get back into this, like new beginnings. It so happens, uh, well, and by the way, and, and a couple things come together here. I was thinking about The Lone Ranger, the show The Lone Ranger, the radio show The Lone Ranger, because when I was first growing up, in Oregon, we didn't first have a TV show, but we had a radio and we would listen to stuff. And I listened to all the episodes of The Lone Ranger. And, uh, and so I, um, and I loved The Lone Ranger. I, I'm aware now that The Lone Ranger had, is cast in a way that is uh, really um, unfortunately racist when it comes to the relationship between uh, Tonto and The Lone Ranger. Um, which I didn't think about, of course, when I was a kid. Problematic now. But one thing about The Lone Ranger that I always liked is there's an original episode, and it came from actually the fall of 1948, if you went back. I have all the tapes of all of the uh, Lone Ranger episodes. And um, the original one, you can always go back to if you're not sure how Lone Ranger started. How did there become a Lone Ranger? Why is he alone? Why did he wear a mask? Who's Tonto? Where did Tonto come from? What's the whole story of the Lone Ranger? And it's really cool. Once in a while, when you get in the middle of a Lone Ranger, you can go back and get the origin story. 
So I'm doing that today. I'm going back to the origin story of, um, of, of DBT, uh, which is uh, really the story that comes with the life of Marsha Linehan. It so happens that Marsha was born in May, so this is her birthday month, May 5th was it was. I too was made in May, May 13th. And, um, uh, and so this is gonna be uh, reminiscences of Marsha Linehan uh, with lessons <coughs> from her life experience. How did she come to make DBT? Uh, why does it have in it what it has in it? Uh, what are the lessons that all of us can learn from her life? Uh, of getting into hell and getting out of hell and developing DBT in order to do that and then for bringing it to the world. I'll tell you a little more about that. But I think even those of you who know the story, those of you who know DBT might find just reflecting uh, through me on some of these lessons of her life might be, might be interesting for you. And those of you who know nothing about DBT, I just tell you this, this is a very, um, the story of Marsha Linehan, how she got through and how she developed DBT. Uh, and, and by the way, this is her memoir. So I just want you to see it. And this is uh, called Building a Life Worth Living. Uh, and you'll hear why it's called that if you don't already know that. Uh, but this is a fabulous memoir, very inspiring. You can get it anywhere, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Guilford Press. No, it wasn't Guilford Press, whatever the press was, but you can get it in those places. Um, pretty easily. So I, I highly recommend it. I'm going to read something from it in a little bit. Um, yeah, so this is the uh, origin story of DBT. And in some respects, that means it's the origin story of some of some of the roots of this podcast. So I just thought it'd be nice as a new beginning, as a resuming, to go back and, uh, and do something like that. Look at where did it, where did it start? Why did it, why did it, what's the point of it, etc. Um, okay. So let me tell you a little about Marsha Linehan. Uh, I'll tell you when I first saw her and when I last saw her. Uh, I first saw her in 1988. I was running an inpatient hospital program for people with severe borderline personality disorder, people who were uh, living dysregulated lives people who wanted to kill themselves and kept trying, people who were harming themselves repeatedly, people who were using substances a lot, had addictions, people with eating disorders, sometimes severe eating disorders, people with dissociative disorders who would lose track of time, people occasionally that really presented with different personalities, uh, people with uh, really, the majority of them, with one version or another of a traumatic past and having PTSD, um, in other words, this was the group of people that I got to know really well and worked with a lot. I was doing that uh, in, from 1984 to 19, 1982 to 1988, that she was working with the same population of people, same types of problems, but she was working with them in a very different way than what we were working with them. I thought, I thought and still think there were a lot of value in the way we worked with them with psychoanalytic therapy, uh, based largely on the work of Otto Kernberg. Um, but then Linehan was working with strict behavioral treatment, cognitive behavioral treatment, Treatment that was based on actually addressing the behaviors of the problem, uh, not looking for what's the un, uh, in intrapsychic underlying issues as much as how do we, what are the problems, what are the patterns in which these problems continue, and how do we change them. So I learned all of that, and so I, I called her, and I went to Seattle. At that moment, DBT did not exist anywhere in the world other than her lab on the campus of University of Washington. So I really got in kind of early and got a chance to talk to her at great length. Um, it was cool for her, which was nice for me to know, that um, she thought it was great that a, that a doctor from New York, from Cornell, from Otto Kernberg's work, was interested in her work and was, went to the trouble of coming out to meet her 
and to see her work. I watched videotapes of her therapy sessions. I watched her run a skills group teaching a bunch of patients PBT skills. And um, uh, it's just very, very interesting. And we talked for hours and hours and hours. And we disagreed about some things. I just had a different perspective on treatment. But I found what she was doing incredibly compelling. Uh, she was sort of a, a mixture of an incredible teacher, uh, sort of like an enthusiastic coach, uh, and a psychotherapist. And she had a whole curriculum of skills to teach people about how to deal with their emotions, how to bear suffering, how to climb your way out of hell, and things like that, that I just didn't know at the time. I mean, I, some of them were familiar to me, but that was not what we were doing. Where I And I went back from that in 1988 and was allowed to start to develop a new inpatient program in the same hospital that was based entirely on DBT. For some period, I ran both programs about, for about two years. And then I gradually found that just too much. And so I shifted over to mainly doing the DBT and then developed a day treatment program based on DBT. So that's sort of where uh, I met Linehan. Now let me, and, and by the way, when I last saw her, was two years ago, a little over two years ago, March 2020, just as the pandemic restrictions were beginning for the first time. And it was probably, it was the last trip I took on an airplane before pandemic lockdowns. And I went to Seattle to visit her. And I saw her and spent a bunch of time with her. And it was when her book, uh, this memoir came out and I was there for a book party among other things and spent a lot of time with her. So that was a, a while ago. And then just yesterday, I, I, I had forgotten it was May 5th was her birthday, so I reached out and sent a message to her for her birthday. Um, who is Marsha Linehan? Um, I'm convinced she's gonna be seen increasingly over time as just one of the major figures, most creative figures in psychology. Uh, she was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and grew up with several siblings, a prominent family of people who functioned very well academically. One of her brothers, I think, was probably on the short list for the Nobel Prize for work he did on renal carcinoma. He's at the, was, at, was at, I don't know if he's still at, the National Cancer Institute. Um, and, and, she, and just very successful people in her family. And Marcia was different in, as she was growing up. She was very smart. She was talkative, um, but she didn't have that same profile as her family had, where everybody seemed to know how to behave, everybody seemed to know what to, how to be in public, how to be at a party, how to be at an academic event, how to be just, I don't know, they were gifted socially. Uh, and whereas Marcia was more uh, sort of emotional and uh, talkative than some of them, which sort of got her sort of some negative press sometimes, but still she was well-liked into high school. When she was in high school, sometime in the middle of high school, you can get all the details in her memoir, but um, she started to suffer emotionally. She started to feel really rejected, really hurt, really uh, depressed, very anxious, started to wonder about whether it'd be better to kill herself. Um, so that's, that was going on in high school. And I think the first lesson I want to say about out of her life that some of you might be able to relate to is that suffering can really come on uh, for no obvious reason. You can end up in, the, in your life which is going more or less okay, and next thing you know, you're just up and down. Your moods are all over the place. Uh, you're falling apart. You feel terrible. Uh, you wonder if you should die. You wonder if you're just a pain in the ass for everybody. Uh, this sort of thing happened to her. And it wasn't like she came from an obviously abusive or overtly abusive environment. So I think the first lesson is that can happen. And when you don't have an explanation for why this happens to you, uh, and it's not happening to other people around you, that in itself adds to the suffering. Because you feel singled out and you don't understand it. If only there was an explanation. Um, so, um, Another thing that's part of this is that a second lesson, I might say, from her life is that an environment that you're growing up in, or a school environment, or an environment of friends, or just family environment, 
can be incredibly invalidating to you, even if it's not abusive, even if there's no verbal abuse, there's no physical abuse, there's no sexual abuse, but it's sometimes there's a mismatch between the person and their environment. And that mismatch can be really painful because that means your environment doesn't really understand how you function. Your environment isn't, uh, doesn't know what to do. Your environment doesn't know how to reach down into who you are and give you suggestions that are based on understanding how you function. So over time, you can start to feel, I'm really different, I'm not understood, and actually that can lead you to feel worse and worse. And so that's just a second lesson, is you don't have to look very far um, to find whether your environment is invalidating. If you feel invalidated by your environment, you are invalidated by your environment. I'll take, you know, for instance, uh, I remember a person, a client that I worked with a long time ago um, in, in New York, actually, who um, grew up in a family uh, where everybody was highly successful. People were attractive, people were smart, people did well in school, and a couple of them worked on Wall Street and made oodles of money, and uh, it was expected that she would do all of the same. And she was, I think, the only girl. I'm not sure about that. Doesn't matter. Um, and uh, she felt invalidated from day one because what she most loved in her family, they hired a lot of people, so they had a gardener. She loved hanging out with the gardener. She loved putting her hands in the dirt and working on gardens and growing things and getting muddy and stuff like that. And uh, in other words, she, did, and she wasn't interested. She was interested in getting dirty that way, not getting dirty with money, the way other people get dirty with money. So she's like, she liked that, but no one, no one ever took that seriously for her. They just thought, well, she should learn to go to Wall Street. She should learn, and she just didn't. So it kept going like that, and she felt increasingly like, like she was a freak show compared to other people in the family. She was quite a lovely looking person, but she thought she was ugly. Um, and uh, after high school, just things went downhill for her, a little bit like uh, with Marshall Linehan. But her environment, as far as I know, was not, again, like Marcia's environment, was not filled with abusive people. Um, but she still felt invalidated. There was another person I worked with who uh, came to my attention because she was sent to me because she uh, had been doing something very, very uh, harmful to herself. I don't even want to say quite what it is. It was just uh, really unfortunate and it was painful to know about and it was painful for her to do and uh, and and yet she's she was attractive she did pretty well in school but she again was one from one of these families that everybody's doing very well and every but nobody had a clue what it, other than her what it was like to actually be emotional what it was like to, to suffer to have depression to have extreme anxiety and so she would go off in her garage by herself and harm herself and then she, that finally came to people's attention. She finally was sent and then into treatment. And, uh, and I learned that she was never again, again, just want to highlight because invalidation is an important concept when it comes to understanding why you're in hell, especially when you're in hell and it isn't obvious why you're in hell. Like nobody has been beating you up, uh, molesting you, uh, bad mouthing you, but you can still feel just as bad by uh, pervasively not being understood. So that's just another lesson, I think, from Marcia's life. Um, by the way, that's sometimes people get into sort of like competitive matches about what's the treatment that's best for people with these kind of problems. Um, DBT, which is a behavioral treatment where you teach skills, psychoanalytic treatment and psychodynamic treatment, which is more a treatment of how do you understand the uh, in the psyche the underpinnings of people's behavior by, by really doing an intensive psychotherapy um, and other things like that. And there's an array of different approaches. My view is that they're all helpful potentially because if you feel understood, that already goes a long ways towards helping you, even if it doesn't teach you exactly what to do uh, when you're feeling really emotional. So 
um, I find there to be value in psychodynamic approaches and other related approaches to that, as well as in a behavioral approach. So I just have never been into like um, setting these up against each other. So what happened to Marsha Linehan next? So towards the end of high school, uh, her family knew she was in trouble and they had her see doctors and therapists and nobody seemed to be helpful and it just got worse. So when she was, I don't know if she was still 17 or maybe 18, they, had, they sent her to a hospital in Connecticut, the Institute of Living in Hartford, which was a long-term hospital. She was sent there and she didn't really want to go, but they supposedly had expertise in treating the people with problems like this. So she was there for just over two years. And while she was there, day in and day out, she suffered. Day in and day out, she considered to be she was in hell. She, people were telling her things to do, people were suggesting things to her, people were interpreting her, people had rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do. She was in an inpatient program and she hated it and she always wanted to get out and she would do things to harm herself while she was there and then they would put her in a security room by herself in isolation and keep an eye on her. And when she was there, she would do things harmful to herself. I mean, you'll read it if you read her memoir. The stuff she was doing was really potentially damaging to her, including hurting her head, like her head ending up hitting on the floor and maybe getting concussions and stuff. And so that was really difficult. And she, her experience was, nobody knows what to do with me. Nobody knows how to help me out of this. So the next lesson I want to highlight that's true, I think, across the board for people is that what got her through that hell? What got her through two years of being there and still coming out with some, eventually some momentum in her life? And um, what she would highlight is um, a couple of people, a couple things. One was there was a fellow patient there about her age and they, were, they became kind of like, I don't know, a band of thieves together is how they thought of themselves. Like they, they were like uh, helping each other out uh, talking to each other all the time. Um, if one of them was in isolation, the, the other one would be trying to sneak things into her. Uh, when Marsha was uh, on rest being restrained or restricted, uh, but the other one wasn't, or the other one was, she would go out a window and go to the local stores and buy cigarettes and bring them back and sneak cigarettes into Marsha. And so this helped her survive because she had one person who knew what she was going through and tried to help her out in a way that made sense to her. Therefore, somebody understood her. And that just having, so one, one lesson I wanna highlight, those of you who are in hell, you're in invalidating environments, or you, let's say you have a family member that's in invalidating environments and you don't know what to do, one person can make a big difference. One person who understands them, connects with them, becomes sort of like connected and uh, does things for them. Uh, the one person can be a real, um, you know, like opening a, a window and the sun is coming in and can make a difference with everything else. Because I think one reason Marcia survived and didn't end up dead in that hospitalization was this other person. By the way, this other person who she names in the book um, happens to be someone who lives here in the town where I am right now and who I've known for decades, um, and who's in the world of psychotherapy herself. Um, but she went through uh, that with Marsha. The other thing that helped Marsha that I think is really important for those who are helpers of people to know um, is kindness. Moments of kindness go way longer, way, way more helpful than one would think. You're going through hell, but actually if somebody comes along, so what she found was there was a psychiatrist and there was a psychologist, two different people, each of whom at different points spoke to her and said things like, Marsha, I just want you to know that we know you're having a terrible time. We know we're not helping you very much. We wish we could, we're trying to figure it out, but I want you to understand that we know that you're not getting much help here, even though we care about you and we'd like to be able to help you. She said that level of honesty and transparency and kindness put together as a message to her 
several times by these people um, really helped her through. So it's very important because you may be somebody or you may know somebody who's in something for a long time that's very hard, whether it's depression or severe anxiety, or they're going through cancer and chemotherapy, or they're going through chronic pain, or they're going through of any number of things. Kindness actually, it may feel to you like it doesn't, it isn't a big deal. It can be a very big deal. <coughs> so that was the next lesson I wanted to mention. Um, all right, you know, I, I uh, the next thing, the next lesson is that, um, you know, the name of the book, Building a Life Worth Living, uh, a certain thing happened towards the end of Marcia's hospitalization in Connecticut. She was in the isolation room. She was feeling like she was in hell, literally. And she had this thought, and it was a turning point for her. It was one of several turning points. And the thought was, if I ever get out of this hell, I'm gonna go back in and get all the others out. This became like a vow that formed the purpose for her life from then on. She started to think, there's a lot of people who probably go through what I go through and nobody knows what to do with them. So if I figure out how to get out of this, I can then go back in and, and help the others get out, which was a kind of a mm, compelling mission for her and it stayed with her all through her career. Uh, and in fact, she's one of these people who actually did fulfill her vow. DBT is on every continent of the world now. It's in most countries of the world. It's in probably nearly every county of the United States. Uh, I've done it. I've, I've done a lot of teaching of it in Italy, in Sweden, in some in Norway, in the UK, in Canada, and different places in the United States. And that just begins to touch how many places it exists in the world. It has really been helping people get out of that particular kind of hell. So that was so that what's the lesson in that? The lesson is that when you are in hell. When you're uh, having a lot of trouble, um, sometimes it helps uh, to form a mission, to form a vision, to have some idea on the horizon of this is what I'm going to do. If I can get better, I'm going to do this. And that is way more compelling than saying, let's say you're somebody who harms yourself a lot or has an eating disorder. You would think it would be motivating for someone to think, well, I'm going to end this goddamn eating disorder. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. Or let's say an addiction. I'm going to stop this addiction. Why am I going to stop it? Because addictions are bad. That turns out to not be very motivating because an addiction itself is very motiv motivating. You have to have a motivator that's bigger than the addiction. So if you have a motivator of what life might be like after you're done with an addiction, after you're done with self-harming behavior, after you're done with an eating disorder, you're going to do such and such with your life. That can be a very compelling reason to plow your way through the heartaches and troubles that you go through to get better in these kind of things. So I think this next thing is that has stayed with all of these things are lessons. They're lessons, I don't know if they're relevant to you, but I'm telling you that these are lessons that have been meaningful to me in myself, my own life, my life in my family, and my work with my patients. And so they might be meaningful to you. But that's a big one. In fact, I wrote a book here on all the other thing up here. I wrote a book uh, that came out in 2016 called DBT Principles in Action. Acceptance, Change, and Dialectics because there's three sets of principles that underlie all of DBT. There's a principles about how to be accepting and compassionate. There's principles on how to change behavior and reality. And there's principles of how to uh, of, of what are called dialectical, uh, what I won't go into right now. But um, when I wrote this book, the first chapter uh, is called Pre-Treatment and the Life Worth Living Conversation. Starting out treatment with people, not talking about you know the problematic behaviors that they're doing, but talking about what do you want in your life? Where do you want to go with your life? What's your vision of what your life could be like? For some people, I remember one young woman I talked to, she said, I have no idea. And I said, well, did you ever have an idea? Well, maybe when I was 12, I used to think that what I wanted to do 
was when I grew up would be a social worker and work in prisons because I just thought people's lives must be really terrible there. And so I had that idea and I was kind of excited and I thought I would do that and my mother's a social worker so I, I thought I could get some help with that. But by the time I was 15, I was way off track and by the time I was 17, I had severe addictions and I was way off track and I could no longer even think about it. And I said, well, I wonder if we can get back to something like that vision. Do you think, is it still meaningful to you? She said, it was meaningful to me that it was meaningful to me when I was 12. And it's still, I know why it meant something to me. And it probably would be meaningful to me. But I'm in such a mess now that I can't even get there. Well, by the way, that was a lot of years ago. And one advantage to being older like me is you've seen a lot of things go on for many years. You know, she ended up, uh, it took her a while to get through her addiction and recover from that. She now, many years later, she's been a, a social worker and a therapist. I don't know if she works with people in prisons for quite a while and from what I understand is doing pretty well in her life. So it's like, it can help get through hell if you see something beyond hell that might pull you through. Just another lesson I think is worth being aware of from Marsha Linehan's life. Here's another one. When she got out of the hospital in Connecticut and she was moving on with her life, she had a couple more hospitalizations, unfortunately. She was still struggling. She applied to college. She did, she did some work. She applied to college. She went to college in Chicago at, I think, Loyola University in Chicago. And she, um, and then she had some, you know, other experience. She eventually decided to go to grad school to try to learn how to treat people who are suicidal. That became her mission in life, and she really kept sticking to it. But along the way, she was still having a lot of trouble until a certain transformational event happened, which, she, again, you could read about in the book. In fact, this is the part where I'll read you a short passage. Um, she was... Um, she was a religious person. She grew up in the Catholic Church, uh, but she was also open to other spiritual kinds of approaches. But she was interested in uh, Christianity and Catholicism. And she was at, in Chicago one day. She was at a retreat center she would go to sometimes on the weekends, uh, where there'd be a lot of Catholic nuns, and they would pray and have meetings and stuff. And um, so she one day, here's what happened. She says, on one especially cold January evening at the center in 1967, while I was in my junior year at Loyola, I was in the small anteroom of the chapel. A wood fire was burning in the grate. I was sitting on one of those overstuffed sofas, deep in a trough of bleakness and misery, as bad as I had ever experienced. A nun stopped, looked kindly at me, and said something like, can I do anything to help you? Or, do you need anything? I felt that no one could do anything for me, that there was no help for me. I said something like, no thanks, I'm fine. I actually was in despair, but I felt deeply that no one could help me. Then I went into the chapel, I knelt at a pew, and I gazed at a cross behind the altar. I don't recall what I was saying to God at the time, if anything, but as I gazed at the large crucifix, all of a sudden the whole of the chapel became suffused with a bright golden light shimmering all over. And I immediately, joyfully knew with complete certainty that God loved me, that I was not alone. God was within me, and I was within God. I leapt up and ran out of the chapel and up the stairs to my room on the second floor. When I was back in my room, I stood still for a moment. I said out loud, I love myself. The minute the word myself came out, I knew I had been transformed. If anyone had asked me up to that point in my entire life, do you love yourself? I might have responded, I love her. After I descended into hell in the Institute, that's where she was in Connecticut, I had always thought or spoken of myself in the third person as if there were two of me, split somehow. I hadn't been split like this before I went to the Institute, 
But during that experience, and until this moment in the chapel, I had somehow been split. Then I said again, out loud, I love myself. That's what I wanted to read. Is that, that's just another thing, is that you, if you keep pushing, if you keep trying, if you keep reaching out to different ways to be helped, you never know where it's going to come from. It doesn't have to come from a chapel. It doesn't have to come from the Catholic Church. It doesn't have to come from spirituality at all. It might come when you're in the middle of baking bread. It might come when you're in the middle of taking a, a hike in the woods. It might come in the middle of listening to some music or talking to a friend. But but you want to, what you want to keep doing is to combat that desire to just isolate and to not tell anybody anything and to shut down and think there's no hope. You, you, you know, as I learned in Little League Baseball, you know, you, good things happen when you put the ball in play. So if you just stand at the plate and strike out, not much good happens. If you swing at the ball, even if you don't know how to swing, you might hit the ball. If you hit the ball, you might get on base. And in life, you just have to keep swinging, I think is the lesson for me that I, th I think is inspiring. If you read this memoir, and plus I knew Marcia personally for all these years, so I knew most of this story long before the memoir came out. Um, you know, she's just someone who kept swinging. She'd be down, she'd be knocked down, and it was pretty bad. And then she would swing again and, and keep looking. And so this transformation came, I think, because she kept looking and finally something opened up. But you never know with each person what it's gonna be. The other lesson I wanna highlight from Marsha, this has to do with something I won't have time to talk about in this podcast. But the way she developed DBT is just brilliant. It's just brilliant. And I worked closely with Marsha for a lot of years, um, learning from her, being supervised by her, writing with her, teaching with her, uh, and hanging out with her. And so I know kind of what she did when she developed DBT. Uh, she just started out, again, grabbing onto something. She just decided you know what's going to work in my life is it, to help these people is cognitive behavioral therapy, a certain behavior kind of therapy, because it worked for some other people. And she was devoted to it. And so she went 100% in on trying to use cognitive behavioral therapy with suicidal people. But then what she found out was it didn't work. People kept arguing with her. People would fight with her in therapy sessions. People wouldn't show up. Uh, people would have crisis after crisis and it wasn't going anywhere. So she started to realize, you know what? This isn't working. But what did she do? She did not throw out cognitive behavioral therapy and start with something else. She hung in there with what she believed would work and then made changes in the treatment to make it work better. And essentially, the biggest change at that point was to start to become more validating of people, to start to more deeply understand their suffering, to start to learn what their story was, and to understand how what they were going through made sense. And then she would ask them to change their behavior with cognitive behavioral therapy. And it became a double barrel treatment of behavioral treatment, pushing, pushing, pushing to change. And on the other hand, extremely compassionate, validating, warm, genuine, and present with the person. And so it was a back and forth, you might say it was a tough love sort of treatment at that point. After that, for a while, things were better, but she still found that things kept getting stuck into black and white places, into getting stuck rigidly, in being in battles with their patients, and them being in battles with their own lives and themselves. And so she ended up modifying the treatment a third time into dialectical thinking which again, I can't get into today, but she added. So the lesson though was, if you wanna to try to do something, grab onto it. You don't have to understand it at first. Put yourself into it, push through, learn what you need to learn and go for it. And then you're gonna to need to modify. And when you modify, you're gonna be changing it, but you're still gonna be doing the first thing you tried to do, but now you're doing it in a new and different way that works for you. And you might need to change it again and change it again. So I'll tell you one place, and this is kind of going full circle, and now we're going to stop in just a minute. Um, one place that's been important for me 
is in deciding what to do about this podcast. Uh, I believe that getting this word out in some way or other about these kind of skills uh, will be as helpful to you as they've been to me and as helpful to you as they've been for many of my patients and many of my colleagues. And just believe it. And I believe that I can do it, but I don't know how. So I started talking on a podcast, which I didn't even know what a podcast was when I started. Now I sort of know what it is, but I also know that I'm in the minor leagues when it comes to a podcast. I'm pretty just direct, authentic, and figuring it out as I go. But now my son and I, him with his really helpful assistance and his, his I don't know, cheerleading support, um, we're trying to do something, but we actually don't know what's the best way to do it. And yet we're, we believe we're gonna do it. And it may take a while, and it may take your input, and it may take your support, and, it, and I really appreciate feedback from you um, because we're gonna be moving forward on this and putting out podcast after podcast and uh, making changes as we go, uh, technologically and in terms of content, in terms of how I teach, and if I have a co-host, like how we're gonna co-host together and all kinds of things. So look, um, uh, I hope that today was useful to you. Uh, for those of you who don't know a thing about DBT, maybe you know something now about where it came from. Uh, for those of you who do know about DBT, maybe it helped uh, shed some light on something or just hearing my take on it, I find might be helpful because it might be different than what you've heard. And we're gonna move forward and I'll be putting out word of when, uh, what the next podcast will be, but it'll be a follow up to this and get into more details of one or another aspect of what I think will help all of you get through whatever kind of hell you're going through. Uh, so may you not face too much suffering between now and the next podcast. And if you do, uh, may you transform yourself and uh, may you hang in there until our next podcast. I look forward to hearing anything from you that, uh, that you might want to let me know. Okay, I'm gonna stop right here.